This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So as we were talking about at the top of the show, trade continues to be front of mind for investors. It's also clearly front of mind for companies, their CEOs, and candidly, some of their frontline employees and even consumers. So let's help folks understand exactly what's going on in those conversations. Got a couple experts to tackle that for us. Sarah McGregor is U.S. Economic Policy Team Leader for Bloomberg. She's down in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Matt Townsend, global business reporter for Bloomberg. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So, Sarah, I want to start with you. Give us a sense of what's happening in in regards to trade and tariffs and how they're playing into what we actually see and spend or don't spend or have to pay for. Right. So just to catch everyone up to speed in case you missed all the trade action last week, of course, the trade talks are a bit of an impasse right now between the U.S. and China. The U.S., of course, raised tariffs on Chinese goods. China retaliated. And the U.S. is also looking now and started a formal process um, to possibly impose tariffs on every single Chinese good that comes into the U.S. So that's your toys and your shoes. We had people like Nike and Adidas yesterday urging Trump to refrain from doing that because they're saying it's going gonna, it's gonna, to um, put tariffs on, on sh- all shoes that you buy in America. So I think, you know, uh, it, we're at a point now where, where tensions obviously seem to be escalating. No one knows exactly where things are headed. And to top it all off, the Trump administration is now um, – blacklisted Huawei Technologies, which is a sort of a crown jewel of technology uh, telecommunications companies in China. And so that now U.S. companies are going to need to get a special license to export to Huawei. And they, of course, depend on U.S. supplies for their goods components there. So so they are celebrating in the C-suite, which is where Matt Townsend comes in. <laughs> Matt, talk to us about the C-suite chaos as a result of this. Well, just put yourself in their shoes. So beginning of this month, it looked like Trump administration and China were going to reach a deal. There was going to be some sort of detente, a cooling of the trade war. And within 48 hours, it went from that to tariffs are going up. And, oh, by the way, we might put tariffs on everything coming from China. And, you know, I, I wrote this story today that came out um, speaking to one executive, his company, Wolverine Worldwide, maker of Merrill and Ked's shoes. They, they make 15,000 new products a year. About 40% come from China. So his head is spinning. He, he thought they were maybe out of this. They didn't think they were going to be impacted. And all of a sudden, it's, what do I do here? And so the, the big problem here and the sort of big potential risk for the economy is that companies hold off on decision-making. They hold off investments. They just sort of – everything kind of freezes up because they just don't know what to do. And, you know, uncertainty is the enemy of the investment. Is a, a and and so, so, Matt, just staying with you for a second, is there any sense of what they – what they need to hear like how much more do they need what does certainty look like is certainty resolution is certainty just a roadmap is certainty talks continuing what what do they need to get comfortable making decisions certainty is it and you know the ceo of a robotics company i talked to they make they make one of those brands of vacuum robots all their stuff's made in china he said look if it if if the trump administration just said the tariffs are going into place on x date and that's it right fine 
they can do things to mitigate that. They can try to bring in, bring an in inventory ahead of the tariffs. They can try to find out alternative sourcing outside of China. But this yin and yang, this back and forth, these twists and turns are really hard to deal with. And this guy is saying, look, I look like a genius when I ramped up all this inventory before the tariffs were supposed to go into place in January. And then they didn't happen. And my board's asking me, you just wasted all this money building an inventory for a tariff that never you happened. idiot. Yes. Yeah. Well, now, now he looks smart again because the tariffs are back on. But it's just this, how do you deal with it? And it, magnify that times all these companies in the United States, big and small, that deal with China. And it's not just wasting money, right? It's wasting time, right? Trying to figure out, okay, let's do this. Let's do this strategy and all that kind of thing. Right. Time suck. Uh, you know, it was <laughs> something that was brought up a lot. Money is Time is money. And just imagine a board trying to figure out, approve some sort of new strategy and trying to assess all these things going on. It's, 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 it's almost impossible. You know, one executive I was speaking to said, the CEO's job is now in many ways to sort of understand what Trump is thinking. Right. All right, so I pose that to you, Sarah McGregor. How much are policymakers, how much is the administration, how much are they hearing, is your sense, from CEOs? Because this is a president and this is a, a cabinet and an administration that you know certainly is in touch with the, those folks. We see them parading in and out of the White House, phone calls, emails, etc. cetera. Uh, what are they doing to mitigate that? What are the conversations that are happening? Well, I think it's interesting in what Matt's story points out today. You know, a lot of these companies that we're talking to, they're sort of the smaller, there's some mid-level range companies, there's some publicly listed companies. You know, they're they're sort of caught in the confusion. We do know, let's say, at, at, during one round of the Chinese tariffs, um, you know, Apple lobbied pretty strongly to get some of its products off the list, and lo and behold, they ended they ended up off the list. And so, I think where where you see a lot of pain right now too is for some of maybe these smaller companies that don't have the ear of the Trump administration. They can go to the hearings. You know, there's always public hearings when these new tariffs get proposed, as there will be for this next round of proposed $300 billion of good Chinese goods that the, the tariffs might be put on. But, um, you know, again, they're just caught in the middle. They don't know whether their product's going to be left on or off um, or, or or what's coming right. next down the line. I do wonder just quickly, Sarah, is, uh, you know, what's more important to the uh, Trump administration with 2020 election, uh, elections just around the corner? Is it making sure that folks are not out of work <laughs> or paying a lot more for goods because of this U.S.-China trade war? Or is it uh, the president kind of saving face in this battle uh, with China and just got about 20 seconds here? Well, for the moment, anyways, Trump has a pretty strong economy with the really low unemployment rate, 50-year low, and, um, you know, inflation really low as well. So, you know, he does have some wiggle room. We did break today that he's planning some aid to farmers. So that might hit a key a key base for him in the elections if he's helping farmers. All right, guys, going to leave it there. Thank you, thank you. Great discussion. Sarah McGregor, U.S. Economic Policy Team Leader at Bloomberg News in our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Great reporting as always. Matt Townsend, Global Business Reporter at Bloomberg News. Check him out at Matt underscore. Townsend on Twitter. He's joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. So our next guest is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Four. It's about uh, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon. He's professor at NYU Stern School of Business. He's founded nine firms. Uh, I could go on and on and on and on, but if we did, um, we wouldn't get to hear so much from him, and I really do want to because he's got a new book out, Scott Galloway. Uh, his new book is called The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning, and he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you back. Thanks, Carol. It's great to be here. Tell, tell us about this because you actually have had stuff out on YouTube about this because yep. I've been following it for a while. Um, 
what what made you do this? So this? my process is I'll take a class that's popular. My second most popular class is a class on the big four, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. And then I do a video on the content of the class. The video got a million views, book, book did well. My most popular class is the last class of the session where I try and distill down observations and some research into some equations or algorithms around my observations around the difference between success and happiness. Having been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with successful people, some are happy and some aren't. And it was sort of a personal passion of mine because my sister sort of summarized it when she was speaking to me a, a couple of years ago on a Sunday night. She said, why are you so pissed off all the time? She said, you have the least justification to be angry of anyone I know. And I looked at my blessings and I looked at my mood and one didn't foot to the other. So I got serious about trying to understand best practices around happiness. And here we are with a book. Well, and what's interesting about this book versus your previous work, both of which, all of which Carol and I have devoured over time, we've been lucky enough to talk to you, is, I mean, this one did require a a fair amount of introspection and self-reflection, really putting yourself on the page. And and I was saying to you before we came on air, there are things that you write in the book, especially around sort of time management and being responsive and following up where I read it and I was like, oh, good, that one hits home for me. How difficult was that to sort of lay it all out there? Yeah, well, one, it's my favorite topic, me. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't that hard. You're in the perfect room Look, (laughs) the bottom line is we're all struggling. It's like that saying, the functional families are the ones you don't know. We're we're all struggling. We're all trying to, you know, take a finite amount of time, invest in relationships, be successful, stay on this hamster wheel of a capitalist society while continuing to invest in relationships and find what's satisfying for us. So these are, the book is a series of equations and then a lot of personal anecdotes that I write about uh, my family, my parents, and what it means to be you know, exceptionally flawed but trying harder. And I think that's something everyone relates to. I definitely related to a lot of different things. And one was about being a caregiver, having been yeah. a caregiver to both of my parents, different yeah. situations. But it's funny, you, you talk about you know spending time watching a certain kind of TV. And I yeah. think about the times I sat with my dad watching like sure. Yankees games. Yeah. And it's I kind of treasure it now. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a good life lesson. Well, look, there's a lot of research around the rewards of raising children, but I think something we don't talk a lot about is how rewarding it can be to give someone a good death. And my, mm-hmm. I was raised by a single mother, light of my life, and I decided that when she ended her life, I would reciprocate a fraction of the effort she put into mine, and I took leave from NYU, and I moved into a seniors community, the Del Webb Active Living com- Community in Summerlin, Nevada, and spent the last six months of her life helping her fulfill kind of her last bucket list uh, wish, which was to die at home. And I've found that since then, and I realize I'm doing a lot of virtue signaling now, but just, Carol, as you were talking about how you treasure that time and that investment you made with your parents, giving someone a dignified exit makes you feel very, it's a source of pride for me. It's right. a source of reward. It's, it's, um, Especially it, when it's your parent. Yeah. It, there's something. The, the caregivers, there's evidence. So there's research here. There's, and that is... If you look at the strongest signals around longevity and also happiness, longevity is number three genetics. It's, it's, people assume it's number one. It's not. It's number three. Number two is lifestyle, and some don't smoke and don't be obese. And number one, the way to predict if you're going to live to be a centenarian is caregiving. And it makes sense. The species in the universe wants to prosper. And so what it does is it creates incentives around things that help the species. Eating food is enjoyable. Having sex is fun. The most important thing for the, for the maintenance of the species is caregiving and loving others. So going all in and being irrationally passionate about someone else's well-being and not keeping score and just deciding that you're going to care for this person, 
the universe rewards you with the most rewarding thing in the world, and that is you get a sense of, okay, all this has some meaning. I'm here for a reason. I'm still a blink in the cosmic universe, but my blink matters. So the people who can get to that emotional, financial, psychological well-being such that they can go all in on someone else's well-being are usually rewarded with a a great deal of satisfaction and happiness. So we're going to have you uh, hang around if we can because we want to talk a little bit more about the book and a little bit more about this world we're living in Mm -hmm. right now because so much of your work leading up to this uh, has been helping us understand the world of technology, how it impacts not just our investor lives, but our live lives. Uh, And I do wonder, and we'll get to this after a break, how that has influenced the way you live your life, and maybe more importantly, how you're helping your students live their lives, because I feel like you're getting a lot of feedback from them as well. I have one more tidbit. I'm going to just steal it from you, Scott. You can talk yep. about later about compound interest, right? There Stop putting go. money away. So right. just another piece of advice. The algebra of happiness. Scott Galloway is going to stick around. Scott Galloway, uh, still with us. We will not let him go. His new book, The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning. So, Scott, as you speak to your students, what's the thing? question that they consistently ask you around happiness like stripping out all their questions about the media world the technology world what are they looking for what's this generation looking for well they want to hack they want to know the secret sauce they want to kind of cut to the chase and say all right how tell me how i can be happy and i would i there really isn't the the titles are a little bit misleading because there is no one equation people have to find there's best practices and worst practices and also, happiness is a bit of a misnomer because happiness is a sensation. You can get happiness from Chipotle, Netflix, and Cialis. All of those things will give you short-term happiness. The key, I think, to living a rewarding life is to figuring out what investments and what relationships you nurture such that as the highs and lows of the pendulum of your life swing up and down, you're, they swing on a higher plane. And that's what the book's about. So the one thing, if there is one thing, and it's from the Harvard Grant study, it's that the people who are happiness, um, happiest have greater depth and meaning, uh, meaningful relationships. Do they feel respected and admired at work, and do they admire and respect other people amongst their friends? Do they feel a sense of joy and camaraderie? And most importantly, at home, do they feel intense levels of love and support? And just as importantly, do they know the people in their family feel that same level of intense love and support from them? Those are typically the happiest people. Mm. So relationships work personal, all levels, just 100%. There's some great, great research today showing out that people who win the lottery and or paralyzed a year later are the same level of happiness because predictive formats and patterns take you back to the same level of happiness, but the most unpredictable thing are people, so invest in relationships. Scott Galloway, professor of marketing over at the Stern School of Business at NYU, is with us. The Algebra of Happiness Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning is his new book. Pick it up. We both thoroughly enjoyed it. All right, Scott, it would be journalistic malpractice if we had you in our studio and didn't press you (laughs) on your expertise. And actually, it's of a piece, I think, with the book because I feel like so many of the questions that you're asking here and some of the things you're exploring have been brought on in part by – some of our misgivings about our relationships and maybe how they've changed, not always for the good, as a result of social media and, and all these different things we have coming at us all the time. I, I think you're being polite to social media. It, <laughs> look, there's, I, I, I talk in the book about meteors, and that's things that could take us off track and really damage our happiness. And anyone who has kids know you have your world of work, you have your, your world of friends, you have your world of kids. Something comes off the tracks with one of your kids, the whole world shrinks to that kid's right. unhappiness. 
And I, I believe, uh, and I'm parroting Jonathan Haidt, my colleague at NYU, who wrote this fantastic book, The Coddling of the American Mind, but I do think we have an emerging mental health care crisis among our teens, and mostly among teenage girls. Uh, boys bully uh, physically and verbally, girls bully relationally, and we put these nuclear weapons of relational bullying in their hands, and we don't know how to modulate it. So just as there's fear of missing out, there's now, you, you see a party you weren't invited to play out in real time while you're in your room. The number of teens who see their friends every day has been cut in half. Emergency rooms, admittance of self-harm and cutting have exploded. Teen suicide among boys up 30%, up 60% among teenage girls. So I think the, one of the biggest threats to our well-being as parents with children is uh, the effect that these social media tools are having on our kids' well-being. And to be clear, it's not just that. That's kind of concierge or bulldozer parenting where we use so many sanitary right. wipes on our kids' lives. They don't develop their own immunities as contributing. Right. But social media is playing a big role. Well, And we've talked about this mm-hmm. on this show, and Carol and I candidly have talked about it offline. We both have teenagers, and we both talk about this idea. And we talk about the conversations we've had with our teenagers of essentially saying to them, we don't know right now what this is doing to your brain. Like, we don't know what it's doing to your brain. We don't know what it's doing to your psyche. And it applies to them, and it applies to us as well. I mean, it it has altered, again, negatively, I think, a lot of relationships that we have with each other. Sure, but so Twitter is my smoking. I probably check check Twitter 40 or 50 times a day. I want the constant reaffirmation. I want to feel like people love me and like my content. And I want to see the people who don't love me, which enrages me, which makes me keep going back and forth. But I I can modulate it. I don't know if my 11-year-old son can modulate it. And he does a YouTube video, and then all day long he's saying, Dad, can we go back and see the likes or the lack thereof? I see what uh, these group text messages have when they start making fun of each other. And the reality is this stuff is kind of on your permanent record forever. So a lot of kids make mistakes. They're shamed, and they they go into kind of this downward spiral. So I think we're going to find out uh, years from now that what we let happen right now was really damaging, and we're going to feel negligent for letting it get So what do we do about it? It's a complicated question. On a legislative level, I think these organizations have to be subject to the same scrutiny that Bloomberg is. If on this show today we could reverse engineer teen depression to what you're doing here right now, we'd be in a world of trouble. But Mm -hmm. for some reason, we've decided tech companies are subject to the same laws and scrutiny. Why is that? Is it that lawmakers, regulators don't understand it, or what? That's a big component. Only 7% of our elected officials have a background in technology or engineering, but I think we no longer, as a society, worship at the altar of character and kindness. We worship at the altar of tech billionaires. They get the mother of all hall passes. There's very few organizations and CEOs that could do what Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk do almost every day. I also believe that there's an economic solution, and that is we should break them up. Because right now, there's no incentive for them to raise their hand and say, I'm going to create a safe place for your children at the cost of profits because they don't need to. Because effectively, these companies are either monopolies or duopolies. I was just thinking about there's a story coming up in the magazine that's really looking at the work of um, Thomas Piketty and, and some of the researchers he's worked with and the inequalities and talked about that you've got these huge tech companies that basically dominate a sector which has put pressure on wages and, oh, and, yeah. and basically you have these, as you said, monopolies and that antitrust regulators really haven't done their job here. We've lost the script. We have a long, proud legacy of when a company becomes an invasive species of going in and breaking it up, whether it was Republicans breaking up the railroads or the oil companies telecom microsoft and we unleash tremendous shareholder value so i immediately tech is trying to conflate the breakup argument with being a socialist argument or a national security risk 
And what we forget is that typically the best way to oxygenate the marketplace and unleash tremendous stakeholder value is to break these guys up. So you break up Amazon, Facebook, Google, your shareholders are better off, society is better off, competition is a wonderful thing, it's a great capitalist argument. The only person that isn't better off is the CEO because he or she is no longer overseeing as large an enterprise. Well, and to go back to something I love you, that you said she. Thank you. That you, there you go. <laughs> That you there, pointed there's out. There's a couple out there. there exactly. 23 in the S&P 500, Carol. I know, yeah, 4%, but I like that you said it. 4%. And, and to go I back know. to something you said a few minutes ago, you know, I mean, we have as a society been pretty good over time, eventually at solving healthcare crises, but we've written a lot in the magazine, yeah. talked a lot here at Bloomberg about mm-hmm. our inability to really address mental health yeah. as a health crisis. And that seems to be uh, at the heart of this as well, our sort of inability to really effectively get our arms around that yeah it's 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 well it's complicated and there's a variety of factors but uh, as i said jonathan heights wrote and written eloquently on the book but just feel just the way you feel i don't i you know we were talking about disconnecting carol i'd now try to go to dinner without my phone Mm -hmm. and these companies are are biomechanically addicting you and that is they are very with random rewards constant feedback i have basically a dope bag in my pocket called my iPhone. And anytime I'm a little bit bored and want a little rush, I take out the slot machine known as Twitter or Facebook or YouTube where I have a ton of content and I see what, you know, people are thinking of my favorite topic, me. And it just it, to not to not realize that we have become addicted to these things. And then like any other addiction, look at the downsides of these right. addictions is irresponsible. Well, and you also write about civility in the book. And I just feel like we've lost it. You know, I feel like getting onto a subway train, you yeah. know, trying to have manners and say, excuse me, like nobody listens to you. I just feel like this has really impacted our world in so many different ways. Yeah, and not only that, but we have the underlying profit, the underlying engines, the algorithms here are not benign, they're not malicious, they are there to get more clicks Mm -hmm. that results in more Chobani ads and more shareholder value. And the reality is, as a species, is we're quite tribal, and nothing will get anti-vax content, creates a lot of controversy and a lot of rage, rage results in a lot of clicks. Thoughtful science around why vaccinations are better for the world and fewer children will be sick is not that interesting or controversial. Right. It doesn't get the number of clicks or Chobani ads. So what we have are these profit engines that are motivated by dividing us, and right. it's very unhealthy. Well, for anybody in the news business, we talk about this all the time. It used to be you knew what was factual, yeah. right? You understood the sources where you went to, and I feel like that world has been turned upside down. Yeah, truth was a thing at Tr- one point. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Crazy. It was indeed. Scott Galloway, what a treat to have you, you with us. Professor of Marketing, NYU Stern School of Business, and the author of the new book, The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning. Highly, highly recommend. Great graduation gift. It's an amazing read. It's a Very great thought-provoking. Uh, will lead to a lot of conversations around your dinner gift. table. Oh, sorry. Well, this is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg about the commuter computer models that will not beat the stock market anytime soon. Alas, this story in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, soon to hit newsstands. It's on the Bloomberg at Bloomberg.com right now. Joel Weber is Bloomberg Business Week editor. Pat Regnier is markets and finance editor at Bloomberg Business Week. Both of them in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So the whole point is, you guys, beating the market, it ain't easy, Joel. It's not uh, so you just buy the index and sit back and let magical things <laughs> happen over time, right? Uh, except that uh, there are some people who have beaten the markets, and they happen to be really good with computers and machine learning, and they've been doing it for a really, really long time, like decades. And we're talking like the hedge fund renaissance, mm-hmm. D. Shaw, 
to Sigma. So what do they know that the rest of us don't? That was sort of like what, where we started this conversation. And and Pat edited this story that's this in this forthcoming money issue. And and we know this writer, Rich Dewey, who kind of dug into it for us. And, and what he found I thought was really cool. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the way that computers uh, think about data is uh, complicated. And one of the problems that they have is that the data just keeps moving around. So <laughs> Darn that data. Damn right. those markets, right? <laughs> yeah. Stop moving. So you can, you, can, you, can, you may be able to train an intelligent machine to, you know, look at pictures of, uh, you know, thousands of stop signs and eventually be able to recognize a stop sign. Uh, but this is you're looking at a picture of a market that is constantly, um, you know, the, the players in it are constantly changing, sometimes in, you know, very subtle ways. Uh, you know, there may be, like, sort of a new, you know, monetary regime right. uh, that, that's taking everything over, and it may be taking people a long time to adjust to it. So that could degrade your signal, or, or it could even be something very simple, like a change in whether stocks are counted in pennies or fractions. Right. You can create an algorithm, right, that says if this happens, you know, causality, this will happen. But... Every time it's not the same, right? In a market environment, yeah, there's and, different factors and, at play. And even bigger than that is when you actually think about, you know, just using the stock market as the instrument that you're going to observe and learn from, it actually doesn't have that much data compared to, say, facial recognition yeah. Yeah. technology where you just have endless streams of data coming at you all the time. And it's like, is this a cat or a human? And you can do that endlessly, except, you know, oh, trading stops at four o'clock now. And now, now we don't have any more finance data, right? So you have a limited pool of data and really smart people pouring over it. Which leads to one of the, I think, most fascinating aspects of this story, which is this whole concept of alternative data. You know, basically looking outside the markets, looking outside the traditional data sets. Tell us about that, Pat. Yeah, so you're always looking for something new to look at. So you see a lot of people uh, in the artificial intelligence space. You know, they're trying to read your social media feeds to see if you're talking about stocks. They're looking at, uh, you know, retail parking lots to see if they can get an easy or a, qu a quick read on are more people shopping at this store or not. I mean, now the problem is, um, I it, by the time I can name those things that people are able to buy. Yeah. Right. It means it's no longer a secret. You know, it's out there, and uh, there are probably multiple vendors selling it, and they're already learning how to do things with with that data. So you're always having to look over the next horizon. Well, and to that exact point about the satellites, a story in the magazine exactly. last week touched on that exact thing. Totally, because it's all about how can you get an, ad an advantage from data that you can plug into your model and use better than somebody else. But what I really liked about the story, there's this one line here. So. Quote, to quote, so researchers have focused on very faint signals, one that might predict the future price with only 51% certainty. So as more and more people get data, the, 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 the added value that you and your awesome algorithm can, can sit at home and play with is, can I get better with a fainter signal? If, if, right. I, can, if I can make a right. bigger bet and leverage it and somebody else doesn't see what I see because it's so faint... Maybe it's not going to work all the time, but more often than not, it might. It's why you have the high-frequency trade trading firms, right? So if you can just get some kind of little edge, whether it's just a faster you know, transmission of a price or something, you know, m multiply that by what, how many, you know, make as, the, as the big As big as you can. Right? Yeah. That's where you make money. I mean, one yeah. of the things they're trying to figure out is something that is not as exciting as, you know, I know how to predict which way a stock is going to move, but I know how to get my transaction costs down lower than everybody else. Right. So that means that my tiny, tiny edge, I can maybe 
you know fixed cost get right? a, how do get I get a little the, more how do I remove that fixed there. cost yeah so a lot of these a lot of these um, quantitative trading firms are really you know just kind of experts in how does the market work I have to say one thing that I found that was fascinating this we talk so much about the competition for AI artificial intelligence engineers and that whole idea that an AI individual or you know engineer doesn't necessarily want to go into the financial community because your whole point is to keep what you find secret. And these folks, once they find something, right, they want to publish it. Yeah, exactly. It, it, give it, give it back to the world. Yeah. And let the world keep benefiting from it. But that, you know, has been, I think, one of the reasons that the renaissances of the world have actually been able to uh, attract the talent that they've attracted. Two Sigma is another one. Mm-hmm. By basically becoming their own academic research facility, yeah. right. really, they're able to attract big, big talent right. and keep it internal. Like attracts like in that case, for sure. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He'll be back with us a little bit later on for a further conversation about unicorns, I believe. And Pat Regnier, markets and finance editor for Bloomberg Business Week. you got to get back to your desk and finish up this issue. It's a great one. It's the money issue. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday. David Dietz is back with us, Chief Investment Strategist at Point View Wealth Management on the phone in Summit, New Jersey. This on a day where stocks are just off their highs of the session, up about nine-tenths of a percent on the S&P, up at eight-tenths of a percent on the Dow. As Charlie mentioned, and the NASDAQ, the outperformer on a percentage basis, up 1.1%. Hey, David, uh, nice to have you back here with Jason and myself. Um, I don't know, where do we go in this market? Do you have any clear visibility? Well, certainly near term, all eyes are focused on these trade wars, trade talks. Today, of course, we got a respite with a, a 90-day delay on trading restrictions with Huawei that helped boost chip stocks who sell a lot of the chips that Huawei uses, um, helped boost uh, those companies, which, of course, have been hit hard on the news over the weekend. Um, it also signaled, of course, that there's perhaps some flexibility in terms of the negotiations with China that we hadn't seen before. You know, our take here really, though, is that although these trade talks are so important, and of course it's between the two largest economies in the world, there is still a small percentage of the overall multi-trillion dollar U.S. economy. What we're looking at here is better earnings than we expected, a overall strong economy and a supportive Federal Reserve that we think is going to allow markets to drift higher. And so, you know, David, one of the things that we've been hearing from some of our colleagues here is this idea that CEOs are really, you know, sort of holding off on making big decisions because they don't have any sense of certainty around trade. Does that worry you at all as an investor or does it change the types of names that you might be looking for in this age of uncertainty? Well, certainly, um, uh, the trade disputes is not a positive. We did hear from the management of, for example, Caterpillar and FedEx 
both have reduced uh, plans for capital expenditures. Alphabet and Apple are spending a lot less in Q1 than they did uh, a year ago. Of course, we've got a whole bunch of sneaker makers led by Nike complaining about what the tariffs could do there, Walmart and Macy's. Having said that, of course, business is never perfect. You're always going to be complaining about something. And we still think overall it's outweighed by, um, you know, where you have a 10-year interest rate at 2.42%. You know, I'm talking with my clients and say, well, should we move into fixed income? Should we move to cash? But how is that going to work to reach their long-term goals? So I guess our strategy here is if you get a large sell-off based on these trade talks, um, take advantage of it. So is that include a name like CVS Health? I'm looking at that name off about 18% this year. Pretty decent, though, uh, dividend uh, if you buy into that name. Carol, one of the tricks, of course, as you know in this investment business, is take a lot of risks that aren't well correlated. And of course, with the whole healthcare area, uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle are wringing their hands over continuing rising healthcare costs. Of course, to get attention in this political season, a number of politicians are talking about radical revamps, Medicare for all. Um, and no one really knows exactly how things would shake out for the healthcare industry. So there's a number of names that are way down. We like CVS Pharma because it's now become almost like a one-stop shop for much of what people People want in terms of their health care is one of the largest drug stores in the nation, 9,500 stores, right to 1.4 billion scripts. But by virtue of their recent acquisition of Aetna, they now have 20 million health insurance members. Um, and of course, they have one of the largest pharmacy benefit programs with Caremark. The stock was over 100. Today is about 53. Yeah. It should make close to $7 this year, 7.45 next. This stock is trading at 53. What am I missing? So, uh, David, I want to ask you about Intel because we've spent a lot of time so far this week talking about the chip names, going to going back to last week as well. Obviously, post uh, Huawei decision, and we'll see where that uh, pans out, as you mentioned near the top of the conversation. But how do you look at a name like Intel right now, situated at a time when tech names, especially tech hardware, there are some big questions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I look at a, uh, you know, a blue chip like Intel in the Dow uh, with a, an above average dividend uh, should is trading at under 10 times earnings. And I'm saying, where is tech going over the next one, three, five and 10? And I don't see any stopping of it. So I'm looking for some names where I can get in at a reasonable price that basically has their fingers in everything. And of course, they're one of the leading microprocessors processor manufacturers riding the tailwinds of, for example, artificial intelligence, for example, the Internet of Things, working chips into cars with their acquisition of mobile eye. And so I think that's a pretty safe pick. Um, am I happy that the chip companies are under the microscope because of the trade disputes? No. Do I think longer term is actually going to put a halt to technology getting into every aspect of our life? No. And so I see a stock like Intel was at 60, now at 44. I think that's a very interesting entry point, and so that's where we are. 
Um, what about a name like Wells Fargo? You like it. We know it's been uh, beaten up. Uh, it's had kind of, I feel like, one controversy after another in terms of some of the mismanagement uh, at the bank. It's a little changed on the year. Um, it's got an interim president and CEO. Uh, how do you see Wells Fargo? What's the thought there? And again, decent dividend. Exactly. Well, first, I put into context here, and of course, the financials now um, are everyone's perennial underperformers here. Everyone keeps hoping for interest rates to go up, which would give them some net interest margins. It just doesn't seem to happen. Um, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, sometimes your best franchises in the country can actually uh, prosper by virtue of overall tough times for the industry. I really think that Wells Fargo has the best franchise in America. Why? It is coast to coast, but more in the kind of the middle market areas. It has one of the largest share of FDIC insured deposits. Why is that so good? They pay hardly any interest on it, and that money just sits there and doesn't move, and they're very light on the capital markets. So here's a stock again that was 65 in January of last year. Now it's uh, mid-40s. So people say, well, how long do I have to wait, Dave? Well, I think interest rates are very low now. They could end the year higher. But more importantly, if they can just identify someone who's well-respected from the outside to come in and make a plan to put these problems behind them, I think the stock pops. David Dietz, you are the chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Summit in the great state of New Jersey. Always good to catch up with you. Some interesting names there mm-hmm. and, you know, well-known names, but yeah, with a absolutely. twist in some ways, uh, especially given the market backdrop, Carol. Yeah, exactly. As I mentioned, Wells Fargo, little change. It's been bouncing around on that news. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.